Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You have called the Smollett case BS, but you didn't use the word BS. <laughs> what about it is BS? I don't think the case itself is BS. I think the the fact that we are a year out from when this case was disposed of, it's been almost a year, that we are continuing to talk about this in a city that continues to deal with, with gun violence. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. And with us today is the state's attorney of Cook County, Kim Fox, who is in a dogfight. Why? Why do you think? I, I think this office had been under the radar for a number of years. And in my administration, we've taken some stances and done some things that have brought a lot of attention. And for some who are opposed to reform or think that we've moved too far too fast, uh, has, has brought challenge. So I, I think it's a, an office that has the potential to do great things and garner national attention and people want in on it. Is there an element of racism to this opposition to you in any way? I don't know if there's an element of racism. I think anytime you run for an office and historically there hasn't been much representation, um, race comes up. You know, elected prosecutors across this country, 79% are white men, 16% are white women, less than 1% are women of color. And so there are not many of us who do this work. I think it presents a unique set of challenges, but I don't think there's an element of racism per se um, in the people who are running against me. But is this about more than your handling of the Jesse Smollett case? Oh, absolutely. The opposition, I mean. Absolutely. What is it about, if not that? I think the people who are running against me saw the Jesse Smollett case as an opportunity. You know, I, I would say that, you know, my... My opponents have been opportunistic in seeing that people were frustrated about the Smollett case. But I think for some, it's about maintaining the status quo. I think as we talk about public safety and criminal justice reform, some of the things we've done around bail reform, around marijuana, there are members of of our community who don't want to see that, who want to keep things the way that they were. And when Smollett happened, it opened the door for their voices to be heard, and they've run with it. You have called the Smollett case BS, but you didn't use the word BS. (laughs) What about it is BS? I don't think the case itself is BS. I think the the fact that we are a year out from when this case was disposed of, it's been almost a year, that we are continuing to talk about this in a city that continues to deal with, with gun violence, in a city that is continuing to reckon with police accountability, that somehow this case has been elevated to one of the greatest um, criminal injustices in our time, feels disingenuous. It feels that there's been more push, whether it's, you know, a $10 million campaign or 
or ratings to talk about this case as though it takes up as much oxygen as it does now. And it shouldn't. I mean, I, I talk to too many family members of violence who are frustrated that we spend more time talking about this case than the unsolved homicide rate. That I talk to people who are worried about, you know, their young people who say, why do we keep talking about Jesse? It's not me. It's what I hear from the community of we can't believe we're still talking about this. But we're, to- we're talking about this because Dan Webb just re-indicted him. He did. So we're talking about it. It <laughs> he, just happened. He did. But even... Why did he? You know, Should I, look, he have? Look, he looked at the same facts and evidence that we had. He filed the same charges that we filed. Um, and his timing of it, you know, f- a few weeks out from an election, um, does make it relevant uh, in front of mind to a lot of folks. And I think for some that's really frustrating because... Of all of the things that we've done in this administration, the thousands of lives that we've impacted, the singular focus on one low-level nonviolent offense for people who are really dealing with systemic big issues, it's frustrating. But he said, one of the things he said was that you pointed to other cases that were handled the same way, and yet when he challenged your office to come up with those details, you could not. Why not? Yeah, I think that that is, again, it's hard to counter something that's written on paper and give full context. This administration has prioritized using our resources on violent crime versus nonviolent crime. And that has meant for us a 25 increase, 25% increase in the number of people who do diversion programs. There was a study by the Marshall Project that found that 5,000 less people were prosecuted under this administration in the last three years than under the previous administration. And there's a demonstrable body that shows that we, whether it's marijuana people, charges that we don't bring, um, raising the felony threshold for retail theft, all the other things where people say, I don't think you're being tough enough, that this doesn't sit as an outlier. This is part of how our office has operated. So why couldn't you produce the evidence that he asked for? And what I'm saying is, I'm not saying we couldn't produce the evidence that he asked for. Why didn't you then? I think that's the issue that we're still resolving with them. I mean, here's what I will say, Fran. There is not going to be a case of another actor who, who... potentially went out and hired someone to pretend to fight him. Um, and put a noose were, around his own yeah, neck or if you had someone We're not going to have one of those to compare apples to apples to. Um, but there are other cases of disorderly conduct. You know, there are other cases that have never been prosecuted. There was a woman uh, last May who alleged that she was stabbed by a black man in Grant Park um, that was reported in the press, and it turned out that this woman um, made it up. And she had mental health issues, and so we resolved that outside of court. So these things happen, these cases happen, and we're working with the special prosecutor to give him illustration of not apples to apples, but the universe of cases that we resolve like that. But people are asking, why didn't you treat him as if he were someone making a bogus charge to begin with? Because the thing never made sense. And anybody who heard that (laughs) said, this can't be true. This can't. Yeah. Why, why did you even take the call from Tina Chen? I want to be clear. We talk to victims and victims' families all the time. I, I just met with a group of 
victims' families on Monday night, uh, victims of violent crime, some who've had their cases in court, many of whom, most of whom, there hasn't even been an arrest on. And so it's not unusual, whether it's family members, elected officials, uh, priests, pastors who will call and say, hey, someone's worried about what's happening here. Can you follow up? And so it wasn't unusual. I think the the heightened fact that it was someone whose name that people recognize gave it more attention, but it was not outside of the norm. But didn't you weren't you suspicious from the get go about his story? Everybody was. I mean, I'm not going to talk about that because he's currently indicted. Um, He was charged as pending. What I will say is that the reach out was about him as a victim, not him as a defendant. I know. But why did you take a call like that when it was clear he wasn't a victim? It was clear to everybody who heard that story. Here's what I will say. I I'm not going to question what other people thought. What I will say is, is that there are people even in his close proximity who believed him. And And did you, did you ever believe him? I mean, that's not for me to say. The question was always for us, was he a victim of a crime? Is there something we could pursue? And then if not, whatever happened then, is he a suspect in a crime? Is there something we could pursue? Um, but people believed him, around him. And I think the what's happened in the last year is this assumption that someone had reached out to do a favor for him. And I would just... Remind folks, asking the U.S. attorney and asking the FBI to investigate is probably the last thing someone would want if they're trying to get away with something. So you're saying Tina Chen was not asking for a favor and it's all been misinterpreted that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it just it it makes no sense. We reached out to the U.S. attorney's office, the, John Lausch, who has made quite the reputation for himself uh, since he's been in office of dogged prosecutions and investigations. And so to reach out to say, can you investigate this, um, would seem antithetical to someone who is trying to get away with something. So what part of this do you quote unquote own? You own something. What yeah. part do you own? Where did you mess up? I think I own Everyone who works in that office works under my name. And so whether it's the process of recusal, you know, the people who worked in my office, we could have handled that better. It was clumsily done. Um, They work for me. I own that. The transparency that we didn't show in the resolution of this case. What should you have done? What would you do Monday morning quarterback? Monday morning quarterback, we would be more transparent in how we explain what happened in this case. What would you do? Would you have a press conference and say, I've decided to, before you went into court, what would you do? I don't know if it would be before I went into court, but immediately thereafter explain to people what the decision making was. That Well, you tried to do that. It didn't work. I think we could have done a better job in how we tried to do it, even in the immediate aftermath. Well, there was no advance notice. 18 days later, you just sort of sprung into court. No one knew the hearing was happening and suddenly it happened. And Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we, but, we owed it to the public. you have had him negotiate some apology, some admission, some Here's the punishment thing. for what he did to the reputation of the city of Chicago? Here's where I will again push back. The reputation of the city of Chicago wasn't marred by Jesse Smollett. This is a city that was named the false confession capital of the United States on 60 Minutes. This is a city that has paid almost a billion dollars in police misconduct. This is a city that when I came into office had 760 people 
murdered and 4,000 people shot. I get that what this person did was obnoxious, was stupid, all the things that we can describe. What we want to do in using our Shouldn't resources. Shouldn't apologized and admitted what he did? Friend, we have people every day who have agreements with our court to resolve their cases without public apologies. We did not want to treat him differently than we would treat any other defendant. And I think what has been especially interesting about this case is that it has elevated like what people's expectations are in our justice system while at the same time, it's been an acknowledgement that we've ignored everything else. Where's been the apology to the men and women who were wrongfully convicted? The almost 94 Watts cases have been, it is 94 Watts cases have been vacated. People who went to actual prison for crimes that they didn't commit. Where's been the apology for that breakdown? Where's been the apology for the Burge victims? Where's been the well, apology? Well, there, there was an apology, finally, by Rahm Emanuel that was almost pulled out of his mouth by me. <laughs> yeah. Aren't you going to apologize, Mr. Mayor? And finally he did. Yeah, I mean, and so for me, I think he, Mr. Smollett, will have to deal with the reckoning of his actions. This is someone who hasn't worked, lost his job, is the subject of ridicule on you know, local, national subject of you know, Dave Chappelle's a comedy special about him. I think he is getting, if we think about restorative justice, um, some measure of justice for his actions. The apology, you know, he'll have to deal with in his next round of, of trial. You're being smeared also with your ties to Ed Burke. <laughs> and the commercials are, yeah, you know, all over the place. Yeah. You had money that was raised for you at a fundraiser at his house. You haven't given it back. You did a favor for one of his clients. You gave a break to one of his clients. They're trying to do a number on you, yeah. like what happened with Tony Preckwinkle in the mayor's race. She yeah. was sunk by the $10,000 contribution yeah. from Burke and the fundraiser at his house. What about that? Listen, as soon as the alderman was indicted, we gave his money back. We donated it to the Equal Justice Initiative. His money. That's right. Not the money that was raised at the house. That's right. We vetted the contributions for any uh, conflicts, and there were no conflicts. And so money that was conflicted, Mr. Burks, was given back. Right. But what about the, the money at, at his house, all of it? What I'm saying to you is we vetted every contribution that we get, and of those contributions that we found to be um, ones that didn't meet our standards, we returned the money. What I will say is it's interesting that the person who's making the allegations is the son of a, a son of a billionaire whose father has donated upwards of $10 million from money that comes from the Carlisle Group. And so it's a, a fascinating pivot um, that he wants to focus on money that was raised uh, by, by me four years ago after the primary, I should add, when his money comes from the Carlisle Group. That money was vetted, returned. Asking questions about where money comes from, I have no problem with that. I think we should be just as judicious in asking about where Mr. Conway's money comes from. And where does it come from? The Carlisle Group. The yeah. overwhelming majority of his funds come from his father's firm, uh, the Carlisle Group. And you, in your ads, talk about the uh, the defense 
industry that they yes. have invested in. And you say he would bring the same military tactics to the office. Now, what is that about? What do you mean? Well, he said it. He, When he introduced himself in his introductory video, he talked about his time in Afghanistan. He had a video showing footage of tanks going across sands and talking about how he would deal with... Well, wait, that he was just emphasizing his service over there. While at the same time saying that he wanted to tackle the gun crisis here in Chicago, much like he did the Taliban in Afghanistan. And I found that to be troubling because that rhetoric around comparing Chicago to Afghanistan is something that we've seen this president do. Um, it's rhetoric of we should bring in the military, the National Guard to police the south and west sides had been floated around for a couple of years. And so I think it is troubling. It's not just that he's a, a veteran. We commend his work or commend his service to our country. But it is that type of rhetoric and with money fueled from a firm that has invested in military weaponry. I find that troubling. On the day of the re-indictment, your campaign put out a statement that said that compared what was happening and the timing of it to James Comey and the Hillary Clinton's emails. Do you really believe that? Was that smart? Was that something you really believe? Or what happened there? You know, I, I think emotions were high. The fact of the matter is that that indictment came out a week before the first early voting uh, site opened. And so everything feels political. Uh, it felt political. What I believe is that, you know, Mr. Webb is doing his work um, in accordance with the facts, the evidence and the law. And this is the timing that he chose. But certainly because it happened right before uh, the early voting site opened, it felt political. Yeah. So do you regret the tone of that? You know, I, I think I think the emotions of we're trying to get to election day and having some having to answer for this a week before early voting, people were frustrated. I don't know if the word is regret, um, in as much as there's a time it. you approved it. Everything goes out under your name. Everything does go out under my name. Yeah. Um, so the, you approved it in a, in a peak of anger, and yet, do you regret doing that? I don't or know, should you have taken a breath and said, yeah? Well. I think there's, there's always room to take a breath, um, yeah. but also a space of frustration of we want to make sure that this race is run on the merits and not distracted by politics. It, it, in essence, the very frustration of this case being politicized, it's been a year. It's, there's been a lot that's gone into it, and its ultimate you know, re-indictment coming right before an election felt very political. Uh, but certainly... We should always take a breath and make sure that our words, because our words have power, um, are measured and appropriate. If you lose the support of lakefront liberals, if suburban women, because of the Simulet case, it might be more important to them, you will need a very dramatic outpouring of, of African-American voters. Yeah. Why should they run to the polls to save you? You know, I don't know that it's about saving me. It's about making sure our justice system is fair. Everything that I'm doing is not about me. This is not Kim Fox's thing. The 770,000 marijuana convictions that are now eligible for expungement, those are mostly black and brown people. Uh, the over 100 people whose convictions have been vacated in our Conviction Integrity Unit have been black and brown. The 55,000 people who now get their driver's licenses back because we don't prosecute, we, we stop prosecuting them for driving on suspended licenses because of tickets. And eventually the state of Illinois signed a bill that said that we would no longer do that. 
That alone, those numbers, we're well over 800,000 people who are impacted by policies that this office has, has worked on. And the instinct to talk about one versus 800,000, where we've seen fundamental change, I think that's why people will come out, that this isn't about saving me. I'm an elected official. I'm accountable to the public. It's about what kind of criminal justice system we want to have. Do we want to go back to where we were before, or do we want to continue to move forward? And I think that's what they're showing Will up we for. go back to where we were before? Based on what I've seen, based on what I've seen, this rhetoric of fear-mongering, this rhetoric of you know, trying to scare people into tougher penalties, uh, trying to get people this notion of us versus them uh, leads me to believe that language around militarization, language around, you know, treating our neighborhoods like Afghanistan lends me to believe that there is not a vision that's being proposed by any of my opponents that is about fairness, justice and equity and public safety. They're trying to make this a choice. Can you have public safety or criminal justice reform? I fundamentally believe that you cannot have public safety without it. They are, they are linked. But they point to you reducing the threshold for shoplifting from 1,000 to 300 and, say, and point to the brazen crimes that we're seeing in places we never saw it before. Michigan Avenue, stores getting hit multiple times. Uh, the CTA has had major yeah. crimes, et cetera. Um, brazenness. But brazenness think, that, that they tie to you and they have yeah. a term for it, catch and release. Yeah, that's fear-mongering. That's, that's absolutely rejecting what we know about crime and violence in this city. The notion that somehow in the last three years that the policies of this office have changed the trajectory of how people commit crime. I remember seven years ago when there were incidents on Michigan Avenue and there were large groups of teens who were going in and going into shops and there was no, what do we do? How do we handle that? That happened seven years ago before Kim Fox was ever in office. The language that they're using, when I came into office in 2016, it was a horrific crime year. I came in in December. Violent crime has gone down in the city of Chicago year after year for the last three years. We did change our retail theft policy. What people didn't know, the lowest felony threshold for retail theft in the country. Well, three states have a higher threshold, or 47 states have a higher threshold than us. 47 other states. Wisconsin has a threshold of $2,000. They don't have the violence we have. Iowa has a threshold of 900. Indiana, 750. Minnesota, a thousand. Ours is three hundred dollars. And there's been studies. The Pew Institute did a study that found that when people raised the threshold, states raised the thresholds, there was not a correlation. And so when I hear my opponent saying that there are these rings of people who are now feeling emboldened because of what we're doing, I call BS. I call BS. It flies in the face of data, research, and facts. Snippets on you know, news or, or campaign ads to try to bolster your case, that's what scares me. Because as a prosecutor, I have to deal in facts and evidence, and their facts aren't supported at all. Well, but it's very well established that shoplifters spent long times uh, behind bars because they couldn't make bail. But have you in the court system gone a little too far in letting out people charged with gun crimes. The Trib did a recent story um, where Judge Evans greatly yep. overstate, understated rather, the problem of those folks 
who commit violent crimes while on bond. Do you think there's a correction needed here? I think there's always room to look at what we're doing and make sure that we're on the right course. We have always said, and to be clear, the state's attorney doesn't impose bond. We don't impose bond. We rec- make recommendations, yeah. but ultimately it's the judge that makes right. a call as to But bond. have you gone too far in recommending and have the judges gone too far in granting? The state's attorney, we, our office made a list of cases in which we believe people should get recognizance bonds. Those are nonviolent offenses and they've never included guns. Again, there's been a conflation of what we've been doing with bond reform. And I also should put the context. Cook County Jail was under a federal consent decree for 40 years. 40 years where we've had a federal monitor around overcrowding. Again, nothing was done about it for decades. The efforts to make sure that we have the right people in jail for the right reasons, poor people accused of nonviolent offenses who aren't a threat shouldn't be there. People charged with violent offenses who are a threat shouldn't be able to pay their way out. I remind people, Jason Van Dyke was charged with first degree murder and the FOP paid his bond to get out. He was out on bond for murder. And so the irony that people are saying are people charged with murder out on bond. Yes, Jason Van Dyke was one of them. But I think what Judge Evans has tried to do is find some correction in making sure that we have the right people for the right reasons. Now, when we find that there are gaps and places where we need to shore up using our uh, risk assessment tool, we absolutely should do that. But I think it's not an either and proposition. I think we can. But a correction is needed. I think analysis and correction where appropriate is always appropriate. Yes. Now, you brought up Jason Van Dyke. You wrote into office on the outrage that it took Anita Alvarez 15 months to prep to uh, charge him with first degree murder on the very day that the court's had ordered and the, the tape was released, horrifying everyone. Um, and yet we have a CTA shooting here mm-hmm. with two police officers who are now stripped of their powers. Will you charge them? I mean, I, our office is working with the FBI in investigating the facts of that case. And we will look at the facts, the evidence and the law in making a determination. Were you horrified by the tape? Do you think there was troubling things there? I mean, that video that went. I'm not going to comment on my personal views on the tape because our office is reviewing it. But certainly I I think there's an expectation that we want our people who use our public transit to, to feel safe and that the responses to, you know, people doing inappropriate things on the train are appropriate. And this was not appropriate. And the guy's jumping cars, so what? It may be, have been a rule violation, but sh- was the response correct? Yeah, that's something that COPA is looking at from an administrative piece. And again, we're in an ongoing investigation and, and we'll look at the facts, the evidence, and the but law. But you can't punt this one. You can't punt this one because your predecessor punted yeah. for 15 months, wanted somebody else to handle the hot yeah. potato. Yeah, we, this is, it's been a week. Uh, it's only how been, long is it going to take for you to make a decision here? Um, we'll work with the FBI to get all the interviews and investigation done. I want to point out the first two months that I was in office, we charged two different police officers um, with homicide. One, uh, Lowell Hauser, was found guilty back in December of last year of second degree murder. In uh, the other case, an Amtrak officer, he was just found not guilty by a judge a week ago. This office under this administration doesn't believe in punting. We believe that 
we have an obligation to resolve these issues in a timely fashion, charge where appropriate and not charge where it's not appropriate. And so I think my track record on police accountability during this administration should lead people to understand that we will do the right thing at the right time. And we're likely to see these two cops on trial? We have to wait for the evidence. We have to wait to well, make you a determination. Just said the response has got to fit the crime, and it didn't. I didn't say that it didn't. I said that we have to look at the evidence and enjoy. What did these cops do wrong? I mean, it's not for me to say at this point. I don't want to in any way jeopardize the integrity of the work that's happening right now. I think the people expect for us to do a thorough review. We don't take lightly charging anyone with the crime. Um, police officers included are due to 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 due process. And I don't want to infringe on anyone's due process rights um, by commenting on evidence that we're still reviewing. Are you going to punt this past the election? We're going to follow the evidence and do a thorough investigation, and it will be done when it's done. (laughs) But you're not going to stall it until after? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This, This I mean... Absolutely not. Politicians have done a lot of things like that in <laughs> Chicago before. I, I understand. This is, I think there's a great expectation to your point of how I came into office and the the frustration of the electorate about what happened with that case. I take that very seriously. This is not about me. It's about justice. Uh, You're not going to pull in Anita Alvarez on no. this one because she waited for the feds. She wanted the feds to handle it. Yeah, we're working. So to be clear to the audience, our office is the lead investigation on this case. We've brought in the FBI as an assist. So this isn't a case that we've turned over to the feds. They are assisting us in this investigation. And so we're, we're leading this. So this isn't one where we're waiting for someone to come tell us they're assisting us with this and we will make appropriate determinations at the right time. Why are you not on Mike Madigan's palm cards? <laughs> You know, the speaker chooses whom he wants to put on his palm cards um, and has chosen not to put me there. I I imagine that my opponents are more frustrated than I am because this debunks their theory that I'm a tool of the machine. But do you think that he's dumped you because you're not popular in his area and he can't sell you? I, you know, I, you'd have to ask the speaker for his rationale. I, again, you find it hurtful, offensive, uh, not at all. I I have received widespread support. I mean, you are the endorsed candidate yeah. of the Cook County Democratic Party, who is dumped by the state state party chairman. I'm who happens to also be uh, the subject, or at least his people are, of an investigation. There's that. Yeah. yeah. What What does that tell you? What is it, What do you make of it? You know, what I make of it is I'm grateful for the support that I have from Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker. Senator Durbin, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, who my heart breaks uh, that we don't have a woman in the race anymore, that we have a wide swath of support uh, from elected leaders and groups across Cook County in the country for our work. The speaker's choice to leave me off of his palm card is something that he will have to answer for. I'm grateful for the support. Who that will I've he gotten. have to answer for? Two. Maybe the media will ask him. I, I, it's, it's on him. We don't get many chances at that. <laughs> <laughs> R. Kelly, um, you made a public appeal for victims to come forward in court this week. Uh, we were told there's a new victim, and we're also told that uh, there was a search, and they need time to go through 100 uh, tapes, uh, audio devices, et cetera. Shed some light on that, can you? 
Um, on the new allegations, I cannot. Uh, the, you, you don't know or you can't? I cannot. Uh, we Is it one of the people who came forward in response to your plea? I'm not in a position to speak to that. We are being have been working with the U.S. Attorney's Office here in the Northern District as well as U.S. Attorney's Offices across the country who are also pursuing uh, Mr. Kelly. And again, we want to protect the integrity of the investigation as well as Mr. Kelly's due process rights. But you've been really open about your own personal story. Uh, Cabrini Green, growing up, hiding in the bathtub, uh, moving into a homeless shelter when your mom lost her job, uh, being sexually assaulted by a relative at the age of five. Was this a personal thing to you? Is that why you did that in, that plea? What was that about? And why have you been so open about your personal story? You know, I started telling my own story when I was an assistant state's attorney in the office and I had victims who on cases that I was pursuing. And there was a, a woman in particular whose son was horrifically abused and she was saying to me, he's ruined, he's ruined. Um, she just was so upset that what happened and she kept saying he was ruined. And I, I felt compelled in that moment to say, don't say that, he was only five. Don't say that in front of him. And for me at that moment to blurt out to her what happened to me. And it was the first time I felt convicted to show another victim or survivor that you can overcome this. And so, that was almost 15 years ago when I did that. And for me, I think we need people in positions like these to be able to tap into their personal experiences to help others. With R. Kelly, after watching the Surviving R. Kelly series, I watched it with my four girls. And it was hard to stomach. It was hard to watch. It brought up things that had happened to me and trying to explain to my daughters about what happened in 2008 when he was found not guilty. And believing that these women who were alleged to be his victims were let down. When I held the press conference, it was out of the ordinary. We'd never done anything like that before. And me putting my own personal narrative out there was in the hopes of someone watching that and saying, if she could overcome, so can I. And I will tell you, our hotline was overwhelmed with calls. But some of them were bogus, right? We had many of them. Were most bogus. of them, right? Many of them were bogus. Most? I don't know about most. I mean, we, we had well, a lot how of... How many victims did you legitimately add to the case because of that plea? Um, all the victims in our current case and victims in cases in New York, Minnesota, Florida. How many was that then? Uh, there, I think he has five open cases right now. Most of those cases came from tips that came through our hotline. And what percentage of the people that called? It's probably like 5%, right? You know, the first day, yeah. I mean, it wasn't... It, it was a small... It was, it was a small sampling. I mean, the first day we... So most of the calls were bogus. Most of the calls were bogus. Okay. And we had to do a thorough vetting. So what vetting. was the plea then? I th do you uh, still defend the plea if absolutely. most of the calls were bogus? Absolutely. Because the ones that weren't bogus, where these women are going to have their day in court across the country... It was absolutely worth it for them. You rejected 25% uh, of the murder cases that were presented to you by the police department, steadily increasing. Inordinate number. Are the police bringing cases to you that are not up to snuff because they're trying to clear these cases and boost their homicide clearance rate in a different way? 
we want to work with the police to make sure the cases that we get from them are ready for charging. And I think under previous administrations, there was an instinct to just charge everything and let it someone else shake it out um, and get a not guilty plea or a not guilty finding somewhere down the line. We have an obligation, an oath that we cannot charge a case where we don't believe that we have a good faith basis to do so. And so that means for us not approving charges when we don't believe we can meet our burden, but also working with the police uh, to build stronger cases from the beginning. It's why we have a 25 percent is an inordinate number. Why is that happening and why has it been rising? I think we've been very discerning about the evidence and the facts that are brought before us. It's and the, they're not. I think it's a matter of working together what the expectations are. I think if you had a previous expectation under a different administration to just bring anything in and it doesn't matter, um, the discernment is different. We're working together so that they we aren't rejecting cases on the, on the back end. We want the cases to come strong. And so we've done things like have our assistants meeting with detectives um, early on, doing office hours, creating a manual with them. We want to work in partnership with them to bring the most appropriate cases. Should other kinds of drugs be decriminalized? Cocaine, perhaps? I think we have to have a real reckoning with the fact that we know that substance use disorder is a public health issue and a criminal justice response is not appropriate. I, I think where we are with marijuana and everyone seeming to be on board um, is the first step. The other piece is we need to be able to have treatment options for people in the community because even if we decriminalize, the fact of the matter is that we're losing so many people to drugs. The opioid epidemic, I think, has widely been underreported about its impact here in Cook County. There are so more we should decriminalize maybe cocaine. How many drugs should we decriminalize? Well, I'm not saying we should decriminalize cocaine. What I'm saying is we, we sh should have a discussion about decriminalizing Correct. other drugs. What are other drugs up to what? I think drugs, it, drugs are a public health issue. I mean, right. I, I don't know that but we how can pick far and would choose. we go with it? Would we go up to heroin? I don't and know. decriminalizing that too. I mean, I think. Listen, someone who's addicted to crack or heroin or what have you, the issues are the same. The choice of the drug may be different, but the fact is that we have people who have chemical dependence on these drugs. Um, people who and it shouldn't be criminal. It's a public health issue. Yeah. Any choice on who should be the next superintendent of police? Should it be an insider? Should it be an outsider? <laughs> Does it need to be an African American? You know, I think we need someone who understands what it's like to run a big department in a city like Chicago that does have issues with law enforcement and communities of color. Someone who understands how to work with the consent decree. I think that consent decree looms large. Does it need large. to be a Chicagoan? Does it need to be an African-American? I don't know that it I don't know that it needs to be either. It needs to be someone who can run a big police department with a consent decree in a city that has a lot of work to do to repair relations between police and community. Kim Fox, best of luck to you in this you. Uh, grueling next two weeks. <laughs> Try not to touch too many hands yeah. and wash your hands appropriately <laughs> and just hope for the best. Maybe elbow bumps. Yes. OK. And we'll see you all next week.